I have a philosophy that if someone approaches me with an opportunity, I never say no without talking about it. Because even if you choose not to take that opportunity, you learn a lot. You learn about what that opportunity is, but you also learn a lot about yourself as you make a decision on whether you take that opportunity on or not. Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurton, president of the Academy. In May, we celebrate Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month and recognize the contributions of this community to our national character. We also just wrapped up Public Service Recognition Week, and it's the month that we spotlight our grand challenge of modernizing and reinvigorating the public service. In this episode, I'll talk with Academy Fellow Terry Takai about her career and her experiences as an Asian American. Terry is currently the Senior Vice President of the Center for Digital Government. She's also served in state government in Michigan and California, in the federal government, in the Department of Defense, and she began her career with Ford Motor Company. Terry, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Terry. I'm excited to be here. Well, I love this Terry Terry thing. We're going to make sure that we <laughs> get confused <laughs> about who's talking to who. But um, given all that we are celebrating in May, I just want to ask you some questions today to kind of highlight your career in public service, as well as dig in a little bit to what AAPI Heritage Month means to you. And as I mentioned in the intro, you've built an amazing career that spans the private sector, state and federal government, and now you're supporting state and local government technology organizations. As an Asian American woman, I can imagine you were sort of an early pioneer in the IT field. What drew you to that career track? Well, Terry, you know, sometimes these things are happenstance. And my my folks were actually, just to give a little bit of history, were actually interned during World War II. Um, and they actually ended up in Michigan. You know, lots of folks think I'm from California. But actually, uh, what happened with my folks is, for those of you that have actually tracked this, um, they were out of high school. And so if, in fact, they could get security clearance and they had a job, uh, they were actually able to come east with a suitcase and $25. And the University of Michigan at that time was actually hiring. Uh, and there was a small community of Japanese American in the kind of 20 to 25 age group. And um, so my folks ended up here in Michigan. And then after the war, uh, my father decided that, you know, from his perspective, uh, his career opportunities might be better um, in Michigan. And so they, they stayed, which was really interesting because I grew up in a small blue collar town uh, where there were you know, two uh, Asian families in this town, just to give you that perspective. And so we sort of stuck out, as you could well imagine. And so in um, school, for whatever reason, I can't really give you a sort of background, but my father was not a degreed engineer, but he um, you know, was in the mechanical engineering field. I did well at math. <clears throat> and so I went to the University of Michigan and I realized um, into that career or into that study uh, uh, curriculum that I didn't really want to be a math teacher. 
I don't love math teachers, but I didn't really want to be a math teacher. And I had individuals that were there at school with me who were going to go on to be mathematics professors. And I thought, whoa, I don't think I'm smart enough for that. A friend of my mother said, well, you know, you ought to think about being a computer programmer. And I know, Terry, this sounds so strange now, but in those days, that was something that was fairly new. And the other interesting thing was, in those days, there weren't the kind of computer science curricula that are available today. It was very much if you wanted to program computing languages. Um, so I, I actually carved out sort of a part of a degree in the uh, engineering school, part in the liberal arts school, and then came out and uh, interviewed with companies that were looking for computer programmers. So I love to tell people as much as this ages me, I started life as a COBOL programmer. Uh, COBOL programmer trainee at Ford. Well, apparently there's still a real demand for COBOL programmers. So if you ever want to get back into the business, we've got some folks who would be interested to hire you. <laughs> exactly. Strange but true, Terry. Tell you, and I'll date myself a little bit along with you. My first programming language was Fortran. Now I couldn't use it again, and and I'm not looking for work. But <laughs> but it is a you know amazing place to think about where where your career started. As you progress, did you find challenges because of your race or gender? You know, were you accepted? Was it a field where you could advance? Well, Terry, I think one of the things I know this sounds, and I've said this to folks, and it, it sounds perhaps a little bit blinkered, but I made a, a real deliberate effort not to think about that in the sense that it was important to feel like I could do what I could do and that I had to continue to move forward is number one. Number two, the good and the bad about being different is that if you really excel at what you do, you do stick out for being different, but also being good at what you do. And so what I tried to do is to take advantage of that. And particularly when I started working, just to be cognizant that I had to always be, and I always had to, to recognize that people were going to, to really look at me for that. Um, I'll give you a funny story. Um, when I started out as a programmer, I remember that I was, someone said to me, you know, when their boss came in and they wanted something done in IT, it was kind of like, I want that girl programmer. So, you know, it's kind of, in some cases, people say to me, well, you know, what was it like being a woman and being Japanese American? And I said, well, to tell you the truth, I don't really know, because I don't know the difference, right? That, that's really what I was. And so whether someone thought it was good or bad or indifferent on either the gender side or being an Asian American, you couldn't really tell. You just had to recognize that, yes, in fact, in some cases you are uh, going to be more visible uh, and kind of look at that as the pros and cons of it. That's such a great point. I used to give that same advice to junior women in the military. I said, you're going to stand out one way or the other. You might as well take advantage of it, right? <laughs> right. I, I think maybe I learned that because when we were younger, my mother said to my uh, younger brother, look, if you do something bad and a pack of kids are running away, 
they're going to remember the little Japanese kid. And, you know, it's kind of, it's a negative story, but it, it isn't in many ways that. It's just the reality of what we faced and, you know, what we had to do, uh, you know, growing up in that environment. Well, you must have been pretty successful there as you had a 30-year career in IT at Ford Motor Company. You know, what was your experience there? What what successes would you would you call out? I think from a success perspective, uh, I think just that I was able to continue to progress in my career at Ford. I was able to move from being a programmer and continue to progress on the technology side and then, you know, moved into the management side and had a number of really successful projects that I am very proud of. I was always in the application development side uh, for those that are in that technology field. And my specialty was manufacturing and supply chain. And it was big systems, as you could well imagine, Terry, at Ford Motor Company, and they were global systems. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm proud of is that we made a difference for the company and uh, many of those technical challenges and some of those technical accomplishments are still there. I think the second thing is that even though you don't start out to be a role model, um, by virtue of being there, you are. And so I always tried to participate. You know, this was the early days, as you could well recall, Terry, and, you know, the discussion about diversity when it was unfortunately mainly about numbers. But it was just important to be visible, both from the standpoint of being a woman and, um, you know, also being an Asian American. And then the third thing is, I think I look back and I see individuals who either I counseled or I helped and they're in senior positions now. And some of them will, if I run into them somewhere, will come up and say, I remember when we had this conversation. And those are moments that you just feel proud because you help someone on an individual level. And those are things that last forever too. So I just know you made such an impact there. But then one day, I think you got a phone call, right? From the governor of Michigan. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I did. You know, one of the things I learned that someone told me afterwards is never talk to a governor because they're really good at talking you into things. (laughs) And so I had the opportunity. And when to tell you the truth, Terry, when they first approached me, I was sort of, boy, I never thought about a position in government. Um, I don't know if I want to do that. But uh, I had the great opportunity to talk to Governor Granholm. Uh, and I just really uh, liked her approach. Uh, she had a kind of business-like approach to government. Um, but the second thing was, you know, Terry, I had never worked for a woman uh, in my entire career at Ford. And I thought, you know, this is important. And then the, the third thing was that she said something to me that I've always said to people was a real gift. And you're aware of this because you've been, you know, you've done this in your career. But um, she said, you know, you've had a great career in the private sector. Now is your time to give back. And when she said that to me, I actually didn't know fully what she meant, but it was a real gift. Uh, having that opportunity to be able to do both um, is something that I will be forever grateful uh, that she, you know, that she pointed that out to me and encouraged me. And I just love the positions that I've been in. 
What was the biggest adjustment you had to make coming from a senior position in a massive private sector company to a state government? What what surprised you? What was the hardest thing to adjust to? Well, I think two things. First of all, government is collaboration on another level. Um, In the corporate sector, there's a hierarchy. And so there is a certain decision-making path. As you well know, in government, it is collaboration like we've never seen collaboration, number one. Secondly, um, you know, folks said to me, well, you're used to big, you know, big company politics. And I used to say that's politics with a little P, not politics with a big P. I never had to worry at Ford Motor Company that I was going to show up on the front page of either the Lansing State Journal or the Sacramento Bee. So I think the second piece was sort of that broader public impact. And then I think the third was that now you are working with the executive branch and the legislative branch and the public. So everything you do did had that kind of three-pronged lens to it, which is very different from a private sector company, even though you do have sort of the politics of it. Again, there was sort of a natural path, the decision-making that was defined by the organizational structure. I think that's a great description. And I want to follow up on it a little bit because this collaboration idea across all of the different branches is so important. And you went from the state CIO in Michigan to be the state CIO in California. And just looking at your accomplishments in both places, you were able to lead massive IT transformation. So talk to us a little bit about your collaboration skills. How did you manage to build coalitions and consensus for that kind of institutional change that you were trying to drive? Well, in Michigan, it was very much around making sure that we were leading with what each of the individual departments and agencies were looking to accomplish. Even more than at Ford, there was a sort of different understanding of how technology was the underpinning of how health and human services were delivered, how transportation was delivered. So it was very important to start with what was the Secretary of Health and Human Services looking to accomplish? Um, And what was the governor looking to accomplish? And so that all our IT priorities, unlike being revenue focused, which tends to be the case in the private sector, that actually is in some ways a little bit easier uh, because there's a bottom line. It was very much around building that collaboration, not around what I was trying to accomplish from an IT perspective in transforming IT, but how was that change going to make a difference in what they were trying to do? And then also finding language on these transformations that fit. So we weren't trying to look at enterprise approaches for the sake of enterprise. I wasn't trying to garner power, but it was more around, particularly at that time, cybersecurity was really emerging as a major driver uh, in being able to look holistically at the technology in both of these states, for one. Um, So that was really the challenge, Um, and it was really being able to you know, speak that language and making sure that we could talk to, for instance, even legislators 
around, you know, why were these transformation changes important? What was it going to mean in terms of the way we were custodians of the funds that were coming from the legislature to us? So in certainly in Michigan, it was that. In California, um, which was sort of a budget that was 10 times bigger than what was in Michigan and much more decentralized. You know, I used to say I had 130 CIOs in California that I, you know, we were really working with. And so there, it was really not only building the relationships with the business areas, but I had to really build relationships just in the IT groups and helping them to, you know, really understand some of the objectives. So one of the things that Governor Schwarzenegger did there, which was really helpful, is he said, you know, we need to bring the IT folks together. And I said, well, you know, some of these CIOs in the agencies have never met the governor. And so the governor actually, during budget session, agreed to do a town hall with just the CIOs. And he said, well, you know, what did it, do you want me to tell him? And I said, you know, I think it just makes a difference if you walk around, shake hands, thank them for what they do. Um, and so that's what he did. And he got up and he said, you know, we really want this IT transformation to be successful. It's important, but we want to thank you for all that you do. So it is important to kind of pivot to what the situation is in terms of trying to build those coalitions. I love those stories. And I could just imagine a town hall with Governor Schwarzenegger. But <laughs> but I heard a couple of lessons in there. One key that I that I heard you say was to be an agent for other success. And the second, to really make your partners feel valuable. And I think those are leadership lessons that you can apply to just about any kind of coalition building. Exactly. But particularly in technology, Terry, so important not to talk about technology. It it's all about you can do the smallest technology change, and if the business likes it, you're successful. If you do a big one and the business can't grasp it, then you're not successful. So it, it, I think for all of us technology folks, that's so important to remember. That's great advice. I mean, across every sector of government today, there's huge technological debt, right? And so thinking about how the experts in technology make the case with their business partners for the investment necessary in a way that supports the business objectives is maybe a key. Did you take those kinds of coalition lessons with you when you moved to DOD? I can imagine that must have been, and you'll pardon my air quotes here, an interesting uh, transition. (laughs) Well, absolutely, Terry. And I think that the challenge, because of the size of DOD, and the, as you well know, kind of the interesting uh, structure of where the CIO fits and uh, many of those things, I had to be much more targeted in where my collaborations were. I had to be much more targeted in the areas that I chose to take on uh, because there's no part of uh, the Department of Defense that isn't based on the technology. And so there wasn't really the same kind of need to point that out. If anything, it was to say, where could the office of the DOD CIO, which in we really needed to create because it was sort of a different construct before, you know, where were they responsible, if you will, to the Secretary of Defense? 
how did they and could they collaborate with all of the different, uh, with, certainly with the three services, uh, but also with the different agencies. So it was much more around being specific and then choosing your partnerships very carefully. How did you get up to speed so quickly on the complexity of DOD operations so that you could both get that visibility and understanding and then make your case successfully to the right people? Well, I'm not sure, Terry, in truth, I ever learned the complete (laughs) complexity of DOD. Um, You know, it was really funny. When I took the job, I was talking with the undersecretary, Malin, at that time. And I said, you know, I've not been in the federal government, in DOD. You know, what? Why me? And he said to me, well, he's, you know, you have Ford Motor Company experience. You're used to dealing with big bureaucracies. And we can teach you DOD. And I would tell you that is the one thing that he told me that really, quite honestly, was not correct. I don't <laughs> think you could really ever learn DOD um, in the time that you were there. So, again, what was important to me was who were the key decision makers? Where was the power structure? Who held the funding? And to focus on specific things rather than trying to boil the ocean and tackle everything. And then it was also to understand, again, where did the DOD CIO fit? Um, And the thing that I'm most proud of, Terry, is that I continue to keep up with what the DOD CIO position's doing. And I'm so pleased because they continue to grow in stature, take on more responsibilities, be a recognized part of DOD. And if we were to talk about, you know, what was something that, you know, I still continue to watch and that I'm pleased with is that, uh, you know, as technology becomes more important, that role has continued to mature uh, and, you know, to be a really big part uh, of the organization writ large. Well, I think you're absolutely right. You can't do DOD without technology. And that CIO really now kind of sits at the center of so many of those decisions. So, you have uh, certainly left a legacy there. As we think about these kinds of opportunities that you've had, these interesting phone calls from important people offering you incredibly challenging positions, you know, the theme for this or this year's AAPI Heritage Month is advancing leaders through opportunity. So tell us a little bit about what that theme and the, the whole concept of the AAPI Heritage Month means to you personally. Well, let's talk first about the point on opportunity that you're making. I have a philosophy that if someone approaches me with an opportunity, I never say no without talking about it. Because even if you choose not to take that opportunity, you learn a lot. You learn about what that opportunity is, but you also learn a lot about yourself as you make a decision on whether you take that opportunity on or not. So I always encourage any individual to, number one, seek out opportunity, even if you don't know if that's exactly what you want. But secondly, never to turn down the the conversation about an opportunity. And so I think that that is extremely important. The importance of that with the AAPI Heritage Month is that 
I guess, you know, you never really, as you're progressing in your career, think of yourself as a role model. I certainly didn't until people approach me with either questions or advice. And then you realize that regardless of your position, as you're taking on leadership roles, people watch you and they look at the things that you do well. And they also look at the things that maybe you haven't done well, as we all do with our leaders. And uh, it's been interesting to me that whether it's women that approach me or or someone, either women and men, you know, that are uh, Asian Americans, that um, they actually have observed. And so it is very important to remember that. And to be a spokesperson, um, this was particularly true when I went to California, more than Michigan, because there is, you know, a larger presence uh, from an Asian American perspective. And I had a chance there to really grow uh, from the standpoint of being part of an Asian American community. And I'm forever grateful for that. Um, but it really did reinforce to me uh, the importance. And then think as things like um, the Asia, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month has grown, it's given me more, even more of an opportunity to be able to speak, you know, in venues like this about number one, what does that heritage mean? Um, but also not to speak to people about not being held back by it. Um, because I think there are still, even for us that are third generation and fourth generation, there are still cultural, uh, you know, aspects of it that perhaps are holding us back without us knowing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As, as you think about your own career, and you mentioned being the role model, intentionally or unintentionally, the the person that that others see in the community, where have you intentionally created opportunities for other people? Well, it's really been around individual coaching and counseling. And in that counseling, being honest with people, um, being honest about some of the challenges that I've had just in terms of the way we were raised. I, you know, I had a young man at Ford Motor Company who said, you know, we were raised to, you know, not necessarily be the spokesperson, not necessarily be assertive in settings. And so it's really talking that through with people and being honest and saying, yep. That is something that we've all had to overcome and think about how we can still be true to ourselves, but at the same token, uh, you know, be able to fit to the circumstances that we're in. The second is to be a champion always, as I mentioned, for diversity efforts. For instance, in my current company, uh, myself and another individual created a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging task force. So it's that continual, you know, these opportunities like this one uh, to be able to speak about it, just being visible, um, you know, are the things that I personally feel are so important. Well, I love that and your engagement in the in the current diversity conversation for a variety of groups. You know, it seems to me it's important, but not enough just to celebrate AAPI culture and heritage. We really have to think about positioning um, every culture to succeed. So when you think about that, what, what would be on your list of the key changes that would best support the Asian American Pacific Islander community 
for success, not just recognition? Well, I'd say two things, Terry. First of all, one of the things I'm very focused on right now is digital equity. And while that's not completely focused on the API community, it's focused on diversity writ large. Um, As we move more into a digital economy and a digital world, there's not the equal opportunity for individuals to be comfortable with that and to be able to take advantage of it. So in the work that I'm doing now, that's a big focus for me, um, just across the board. Um, if I are if I if I pivot that and think about just overall some of the areas for you know the AAPI community that I think is so important. One is um, you know those times that I've been involved in number one getting them more engaged in public service, being a part of government, thinking about running for government offices, and you know, being visible in, in the community in even a larger way than I have you know, in terms of being an an appointee. Um, And then I think continuing to celebrate as we are. Um, You know, one of the things that I did in California is that we did some work with the library around grants because, you know, many of the um, individuals who were subject to the interning camps are not going to be around to tell their stories. So some of that historical presence, I think, is so important. So I think it's the visibility. I don't know that it's more than that. Um, The other thing is that, you know, as these articles come through, I try to make sure that my family, uh, that my niece and nephew and their children have that heritage. Not because I think it's negative, but because I think it just gives us a history that is important for all of us, you know, as we personally move forward on our individual journeys. We don't want to forget that. Um, but we also want to continue to move forward. It's so important. We can't change the future if we forget the history, right? Well, Terry, thank you so much for sharing both your personal story and history and your perspective on the uh, Heritage Month that we celebrate and the importance of the Asian American Pacific Islander community, as I said up front, really to our national character. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Terry, for having me. For our listeners, check back every Monday for a new episode from the Academy as we work to build a just, fair, and inclusive government that strengthens communities and protects democracy.